right, well, uh, this morning we are continuing our series, uh, this October series, this doctrine series, uh, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and now the Larger Catechism is something like 190 questions, we've made it halfway through question one, so, and we're only going through October, so we're, we're not going to get very far, I'm just telling you that right now, so, um, uh, but we, uh, 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 but I'm going to go ahead and begin um, uh, this. And we started, uh, and we started last week talking about uh, talking about glorifying God, and uh, and we're going to get to the second half of the answer here. But I'm going to start off with reading uh, our our first text that we'll be considering, and really kind of you could even consider it a theme text for the for the sermon and the answer itself, which is a very short verse. It's a if you're looking for a, a nice quick. Bible memory verse uh, for you this week. I have it for you. Uh, this is Philippians 4.4. 4. And, uh, and this is the English Standard Version. Which is, and hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. May God bless the reading of his word and the preaching of it. So as I said, we are in the second part of uh, not only this Reformation series for October, but also part two of the answer to one of life's biggest questions, which is, what is my purpose? Why are we here? Or more properly, what is the chief and highest end of man? What is the chief and highest end of man? And the, and the answer according to the catechism that we saw last week, which is that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. And we looked at the first half of the answer already to glorify God. And there last week we said that to glorify God is to call attention to God's per perfections, his perfections in his being, his word, and his works. And we do that because God deserves it. For not only did he make us, he has also redeemed us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we are doubly not our own. We are doubly, uh, God, uh, um, uh, we doubly belong to God. And, and then we pondered how we glorify God uh, in, in our everyday lives, as Paul was telling us to, uh, we were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. Uh, where, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. The glorifying God, we found, was in, an immensely practical command. Uh, but all, all of that is good, and, 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 and all of life is to be done with an eye to the glory of God. But we come to, uh, out of that, we come to a very na a natural question, and I would say an even reasonable objection that someone might uh, bring up. And th they would say, well, okay, well, what about me? Uh, wh what about my own happiness? I understand that, that, that God, uh, you know, he gets what his glory and he deserves that glory. I'm not even arguing against that. But how does my happiness fit into this equation? Uh, am I, how can I be happy? How can I be joyful if all I'm doing is seeking to give everything to God? And 
this, uh, there's this very natural tendency, and it's, and it's, it's a, um, you could call it a presumptive error that occurs because we have this tendency to pit the glory of God and our joy against each other as if, there, as if it's a zero-sum game. And, and this occurs for several reasons. Uh, first, uh, we, we tend to have a very low and earthly definition of what joy actually is. Uh, we only conceive of joy as kind of these fleeting moments of intense earthly pleasure. Second, we define joy with man at the center. Uh, that, that we conceive of joy as something that we uh, bring about in ourselves and, uh, and according to our own ways rather than, than, than something that comes from God and by God. And third, we often view religion and Christianity specifically as something that restrains our joy. Again, joy is often conceived as an earthly thing that cannot be even comprehended by spiritual beings like uh, uh, God or even angels. In fact, there was a terrible movie that came out in the 90s called City of Angels with uh, Meg Ryan. I remember I saw this. And it was about, and it was about, it basically highlighted how, uh, you know, it was way better to be a fallen human being. <laughs> so, uh, because uh, you could actually experience things and, and, and pleasure and happiness. And, and so, uh, and it really misses the mark, to say the least. But the scriptures correct us here. And this morning, we're going to consider two things. And that first is that it, what it means for our greatest purpose to be the enjoyment of God and then bring it all together from last week and this week and consider how glory and joy actually work together in the Christian life. And so first, our, our greatest uh, purpose is, as we said, to glorify God uh, and, as we're going to focus on this morning, to fully enjoy him forever, or fully to enjoy him. And, and the first thing we need to notice here is that uh, according to the catechism answer, and when we look at the scriptures, we find that joy is a verb. Now, grammarians, I know that that sentence is technically incorrect. Okay, I know joy there is a noun. Okay, I'm making a point. Uh, it is in our thinking, we can get off course because we miss the fact that the authors of the catechism uh, in, 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 uh, the, the, who wrote this question and the answer, they're looking at the commands of Scripture and where we tend to talk about joy, they talk about, uh, they talk about enjoying God. We, we jump, usually we have this knee-jerk reaction that jumps straight to a noun, whereas the catechism doesn't give us a noun, it gives us a verb enjoying God. To enjoy is to delight oneself in something. But even here we can get off course because it sounds like uh, when we say enjoy God fully forever, it may sound to someone like they're being commanded to take joy in Brussels sprouts or whatever food you hate. Enjoy it, okay? It's good for you. Now eat it and smile and you like it because the kids in China are starving and you should eat, all right? I paid for this. But that is not what's going on here. Enjoying is to delight oneself in, to express that delight, even to commend the object of our joy to someone else, to others around us, to call them to come and also enjoy this with us. 
The point here simply is that enjoying is not merely waiting around until God drops this thing of joy into our laps. It's not just eating uh, things that we hate and doing things that we hate until God drops joy into our lives. Enjoying is something that we do. But we also note that joy, even the noun, uh, as Paul uses it in Galatians 5, is a fruit of the Spirit. The joy that is produced out of enjoying the Lord is a fruit of the Spirit. He notes in another passage that, that while, other, while even though uh, we have suffering believers, they are sorrowful, yet they are always, because of the gospel promises, rejoicing. And so, and, and so in saying that enjoying God requires some action on our part, uh, it's not saying that, uh, it's not simply saying that um, we need to, you know, make this some kind of work by which we merit some kind of favor from God. But the, the enjoyment of God, enjoying God, is something that is born of the Spirit in the souls and the hearts of believers. It is cultivated, nurtured, through the diligent use of the means of grace, prayer, the word, the sacrament. Indeed, Paul says in Philippians, in our passage that we, that we read at the beginning, he writes that, ver- that verse, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He writes that while chained up in prison. He writes about rejoicing in the Lord. He's not writing from the Bahamas on vacation. Rejoice in the Lord always. And, it, and that matters, doesn't it? It matters when, when it comes, when you talk to somebody who, you know, uh, who has really never, I say never, most people have, but if you talk to somebody who hasn't really dealt with real hard trauma or difficulty in their life, and then you're in the midst of it, and they come and they say, hey, just cheer up, it'll get better, you know? But if someone who has gone through the ringer, who has been through the desert, comes to you and says, he will not abandon you. It speaks, right? Here is Paul from prison writing, rejoice always in the Lord, even when you're in prison. So how do we get joy? Well, by moving from, certainly from passivity, as we're just kind of waiting for joy to just drop out of the sky, and, and moving towards activity by the power of the Spirit, as we just talked about. But just as importantly... Uh, we also need to know that, uh, what the object of our joy is, because it matters. In Psalm 16, verse 8, David says that he has set the Lord always before him. Psalm 73, verses 24 to 26, Asaph, he writes that God is all that he has, and there is nothing on earth that he desires besides God. It doesn't mean that Asaph doesn't want to eat. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have lower desires what he means is there is nothing that he desires that is on the same level or above god why because he says in verse 28 that he knows that for him it is good to be near god the presence of god is a good thing indeed the lord is his refuge he says that he may tell of his word As we have already heard Paul say, we are to rejoice not merely in what the Lord has done for us, 
but we are to rejoice, to take joy in, to enjoy always the Lord himself. Rejoice in the Lord, he says, always. Now, this is important because for one thing, to have God as the object of our joy means that we can have a joy that will never fail to produce in some, some manner gratitude in every circumstance of life. I mean, what does Paul say? I found the secret, right, to contentment in every circumstance, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm starving. What is that? That Christ strengthens me in every circumstance. God is the fountain of life. Joy, it is clear, made, made clear in the Psalms, made clear in the Old Testament, made clear in the New Testament, that joy is found in his presence, particularly for his suffering saints. This is not to say that we cannot enjoy other things in life, that we can enjoy our, uh, you know, we can enjoy our families, our homes, our vehicles, uh, our vacations, our relational and physical blessings that God has given to us. But we enjoy them as gifts from our God with gratitude, and thus we are, by our even our enjoyment of those gifts and acknowledging with gratitude the giver of those gifts, we are enjoying God. And giving glory to him. Secondly, we must acknowledge the limits that these gifts can produce. There are limits to even the gifts that God gives to us. God gave you breakfast this morning. It's not last until lunch. Well, you're telling me. I'm already hungry. All things in this world will fail eventually. Sometimes things that we thought would bring joy bring sorrow. But, as, is it, but if, as we have already noted, God is our creator and our redeemer, and we set the Lord before us, well, then there is no limit to the joy we can have, to the comfort, to the peace that we can enjoy, even in the hardest of circumstances. One theologian noted that we can only enjoy that which we have some claim upon. Think about that. You can only enjoy that which you have some sort of claim upon. That is, if I enjoy something, it must be in some sense mine. It must be in some sense my possession. It must be accessible to me, and I must have a right to it in some sense for me to enjoy it. At least, if, at least if it's not to be some kind of illicit thing. What kind of a claim can we have upon the Lord if we are to enjoy him, to rejoice in him? He has every claim upon us. We talked about that last week. He made us. He's redeemed us in Jesus. We are not our own. Yet we do have claim upon God, but it is not because we reached up to heaven and, and tried to take it as they did at the Tower of Babel. But it's because he condescended and descended to us and covenanted with us that we would be his people and he would be our God. We have claimed to God because he covenanted with us. And what is more, Jesus, his only son, established the new covenant in his own blood. The promise of which secures us and secures for us a claim to an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God 
which is nothing less than God himself as he dwells with his people forever. And he says, you, dear Christian, have a right to it. You have a claim to it. You have a claim to call God your God, my God, and to enjoy him. And so we enjoy God not by a white-knuckled legalistic determination to enjoy him, but by the grace of of God and the gospel, we are brought into a saving covenantal relationship with God where we have a claim upon him and we are given the right not merely to serve him, but to enjoy him. And this brings us to another aspect of this joy that the, that the, that the, uh, um, the Westminster Divines are talking about, which is the direction of our joy. Enjoying God gives us the direction of our joy. The catechism says that our purpose is to enjoy God. And they have two uh, modifiers that they, uh, that they modify the verb with, which is fully and forever. The modifiers here reveal these words, fully and forever, reveal that enjoying God then at this particular moment in our life is not a constant or even consistent thing. Or else why would they put those words in there? They reveal the, the assumption by the inclusion of those words that there is growth, change, and progression in the enjoyment of God in the Christian life. It assumes a time when we, that we began to enjoy God and that our enjoyment of God is even now partial, but in time will grow and, and, and will finally be consummated in the, into what we could call an eternal fullness of joy, something of which, by the way, we cannot comprehend in this life. It's something that those who have gone to be with the Lord ahead of us know, but even they do not know what it is in fullness until the kingdom of God. That we will share in together. David Going back to Psalm 16, verse 9, he declares that his heart is glad. His whole being rejoices in the security of the promises of God. That, is, that basically he is preempting Paul, who would later write that the work that God begins, he surely will complete. And David goes on in verse 11 of that psalm saying, the Lord has made known to me the path of life. In the presence of God is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. All of this is to say that for the believer, God is not crossing his arms with a furrowed brow, grumbling about how you ought to pay more attention to him and enjoy him more. You haven't bought God any flowers lately, have you? And he's mad and cross with you. Rather, the Lord invites us in. He leads us in this life to greater and deeper enjoyment of him. An enjoyment which we are promised will be made full when we come into his presence. Now, some of that means that he has to reveal to us somewhat painfully the emptiness of the pleasures of this life, because in part we have been making too much of them. 
before we leave this, I just want to take you a moment, take, take a moment and consider the, that this question that was written and answered by a bunch of pastors and theologians in the 1640s. You know, life was in many ways a lot harder and a lot shorter for them than we experience today. We have our own troubles. We have our own sorrows. We have our own losses. But I mean, even if you look at the infant mortality rates in the 1640s, we are in a different place now. Okay. Uh, and so and so the, the devastation, you know, I always reminded John Owen, the, the, the great theologian who wrote so many volumes, all 10 of his children died. All 10 of his children, only two of them made it into their teen, teen years before they died. Buried all 10 of his children. Okay. And yet he still writes about the goodness and the love and the mercy and the wonder of God. Still writes about the joy that we can have in, in, in him. But these men look at the scriptures. And they look at all these things and, and they consider all the things they could say about the purpose of man and they reduce it all down to two things. Think about that. Someone would ask you from the Bible, tell me, what's the purpose of man? You would have a list. I would have a list of stuff, right? They boil it down to two things. And one of them is joy. One of them is enjoying God. And this, and this brings us to kind of to go back to last week and kind of pull this all together. It, and, and, it, and, and that the answer to this question about the, what is the chief and highest end of man it provides us with a singular purpose that is worthy. It's a worthy calling of, of our lives to glorify God and, to, and fully to enjoy him forever. I mean, it's a wonderful calling to think about that, that God wants me to learn today to enjoy him more than I did yesterday, but not in an angry fashion, not in a legalistic fashion, not like, He's, he's put this test out for me to pass or fail. But he's inviting me to enjoy him more, to have more joy. Think about the prayer that Paul prays in, 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 in Ephesians and how he, and he prays for God to enlarge the capacity of the Ephesian Christians and, he, and, and even us to be able to comprehend to a greater degree God's love for us in Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, you don't get it, but not in a bad way. You get it a lot, but as much as you get it, there's more to get. There's more to know. There's more to experience. And that is true not only of this life, but also the life to come. And so, and so we need to comprehend here that glory and joy are not antithetical things. They're not... It's, as I said last week, they're not oil and water, they're peanut butter and jelly. They go together. And they go together. And, and, and I want you to consider here what Jesus says. He's praying the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And in verses 22 to 24, here's what he says. He says, he's praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them you and me, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, we do not have time to unpack that, those beautiful lines from that prayer. But we need to see that God's glory, the communal love of the members, the persons of the Trinity, are interconnected with our union with Christ as Christians. The revelation of the glory of Christ is a revelation of love that is experienced with greater fullness as we walk in this life and ultimately when we enter in the pre- into the presence of Christ in glory. In his glory, our joy is made full. God has set himself to reveal his glory in love in us. And this is the joy of his people. The problem is that we bought the lie that earthly pleasure is better than the joy that God gives in union with Christ and in communion with him. But glory and joy not only go together, glory and joy also set us in our true direction. One might approach the, the, the calling of glorifying God and enjoying him fully uh, and, and forever with some hesitancy because it seems unnatural to make God's glory and our enjoyment of him our chief purpose. And, and uh, you know, an important, sure. Good thing, absolutely. Ultimate thing, there's, there's something that's kind of pulling me back. I'm kind of something I just feel like I'm dragging my heels on. And I can't quite put my finger on it. And, and the reality here is that actually it's not that it's like, oh, well, here's a suggested way to, to have a good life. It's not what the Bible's doing here. The Bible is saying, look, this is what your original design was to be. This is what you were made for. If you do something else, it's not that you're choosing a different thing. It's that you're actually going against what you were made for. And we're all about doing what we were made for, aren't we? Glorifying and enjoying God is not only what we were made for, it's what Christ redeemed us for. Glorifying and enjoying God is where we're headed toward in eternity. And let me ask you this. Are they in heaven less joyful than we on earth? Are those in heaven who have gone on to be before us, who are in the presence of the Lord, are they less joyful than us? Of course not. We know that they know that in our heads, but we still have a, a, a strong attachment, and we and we have a hesitancy in us, and we wrestle with it. When we, but when, ask yourself, when I'm in the kingdom of God in eternity future, and you know, the re- revelation is done, 
like the book of Revelation is complete. Will I look back longing for the, the, the good old days in the fallen world? Of course not. And we know to say no. We're in church. We have to say no. I know. I get, I get that. But it's kind of that thing in us where we go, well, you know, I know heaven's great, but oh, I'm not sure if I want to go there just now. Right? This is kind of that, that pull. And but we have to conclude that the fear in our hearts, even that mild sense of dread we feel when we think about making the glory and, and enjoying of God our chief aim in life, is there's a natural creaturely weakness to it. But there's also still the remnant of the flesh that is rebelling against the eternal calling that is upon it. The remaining corruption that is yet to be removed. And so, if we, if we, if we don't do this, what if we don't make God's glory and, and, and enjoying him our, our, our ultimate aim in life? Well, it just means that we're setting ourselves up for heartache. And that, um, and that loss will come because instead of setting God before us, instead of, instead of stirring up our hearts with praise and gratitude for our Redeemer, we're trying to extract eternal joy out of temporary things, things that are passing away in a vain hope that if we, if we just accumulate enough fading pleasures, this will give us a vague sense of security and happiness and when it doesn't work, guess who people get mad at? God. Even though he said, this wasn't your purpose. It never was. But when we make glorifying God and enjoying him our ultimate aim, then, then that's when we can say things like Paul does. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That I've learned the secret of contentment in every circumstance. We read passages like that. Rejoice always. In the Lord. Always. Where Paul says, I don't compare the sufferings and tribulations of this life even worth comparing to, to the surpassing goodness and glories that are to come. You're like, well, how do I get there? I want to be able to say stuff like that, like Paul says, but I can't say that. I don't know, just honestly. Like, I just, I'm not there yet. That's okay. That's okay. Don't have to be there yet. But you're on the path. And to pray and to embrace that, that Christ's glory, the glory of God, and your enjoyment of him is your chief aim in life. And to make that your purpose. This is, this is, this is our direction. And to take a step forward in that direction. And finally, we see that glory and joy the glorifying and enjoyment of God is what gives us hope. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4 is a familiar passage for many, um, uh, but is, it, is, it puts the capstone on all of it. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
the former things have passed away. Longing for that day. There are, there at the end of all things, the kingdom of God has come in, the new heavens and earth has arrived, the dwelling place of God is with man, and what's the result? Tears and mourning, crying and pain are wiped away. There are memory. All that remains, all that is left, is glory. Enjoy. As we talked about at the beginning, we tend to have a warped or hidden view of, of the world where we, we kind of have this tendency towards two extremes. On the one hand, we, have, we, we tend towards the denial of the physical over the spiritual. And this would be those who, who through this, you know, are very strict and deprive themselves in a legalistic fashion of earthly blessings and even, even gifts from God because they believe by the harshness that they place upon their bodies and the harshness they even have upon others that this will somehow yield eternal rewards. This is uh, the view uh, known as asceticism. And the other extreme uh, it, it denies the spiritual over the physical, or in, in view of the physical. This is the, the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking person who may even profess faith in Christ, but believes that God would never deny one of his children pleasures to be had in this life, even if they are sin. But the goodness and grace of God denies these extremes, which have done so much damage and even continues to do damage to the church. God's grace rather intersects them, affirming the goodness of creation and the momentary mercies and comforts and gifts that God provides while yet holding out the promise of eternal reward and indeed eternal joy unknown in the age to come. And even in the midst of our life now, the promise that we can experience joy in God that transcends our present circumstances. The pursuit of glorifying God and enjoying him, thus are these, these are twin pursuits that are intertwined. They are reciprocal. They feed into one another such that they are a singular purpose. As we call attention to the perfections of God, we stir our hearts to rejoice in him. And as we rejoice in him, we glorify him. And, as, and we call one another to do it in the midst of it. And we will continue to do this with greater fullness and increasing joy all the way into eternity. In all of this is the design of our Creator and our Redeemer. What is the chief end of man? The chief and highest end of man? The chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at times we certainly can have competing interests and competing purposes that are placed before us. Lord, we can uh, at times elevate legitimate uh, purposes of, of, of being 
uh, um, husband or wife and a father or uh, our employment or uh, calling to do uh, a great good at work and in our society and community. And we can take these things and elevate them above our true calling. And we can do them apart from seeking to glorify you and to enjoy you. Lord, we pray that you would take all these good and noble purposes, indeed purposes that you have given to us, these various roles and, and callings, and Lord, may we learn to view them as, as, uh, as callings under the great umbrella of, our, of the ultimate calling to glorify our God who made us and redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And fully to enjoy you forever and to know, Lord, that we do these things not by our own mere effort, but by your grace, the indwelling of the spirit. By the gifts that you have given to us, the means of grace, your word, prayers, sacraments, the the fellowship that we have of believers that strengthen us as long as the day is called today to love and good deeds. Father, we pray that we would make this calling to glorify you and to enjoy you, our grand calling, that we would live in line of that, in line with it, and that you tomorrow even, that you would increase our joy as we seek to glorify you. And may we grow more and more of this until we come into the fullness of both glory and joy in your presence in the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.